concluded last week, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 1. We mentioned the fact that Habakkuk is a brief book, it's a pointed book. It's not an easy book. This is something of a bumpy ride. But it is so gloriously relevant because it speaks to us, it teaches us of the character of God. And there is this structural component to it where Habakkuk speaks and God speaks. Habakkuk speaks and God speaks. So you have this running sense of dialogue. And what we said about the book of Habakkuk is that Habakkuk the prophet is wrestling with God. He's got some major questions. He wants to know some of these why questions. And interestingly, they're the same questions that we want to know and that we ask as well. And so, first of all, the book begins with this burden that Habakkuk has. And Habakkuk wonders out loud, Lord, are you being fair? Are you being kind? you recognize the sin that's going on? When are you going to come and hear my prayer and hear my cry? And when are you going to sort things out? And then God speaks. And it's not the answer that Habakkuk expects. God says, well, I'm doing something. I'm doing something. In fact, I'm going to judge Judah with the Babylonians or the Chaldeans. That's not the answer I think that Habakkuk expected. But that's the answer that God gives. And so, as Habakkuk responds to that, there is a sense of perplexion. I, I can't believe that you would that you would take in your hand this rod of discipline. The Babylonians are really bad people. To judge bad people. That doesn't make sense to me. And so you see how he grapples with the justice and judgment of God. And we, in like matter, have grappled with questions like that. We've had to come to grips with, Lord, are you hearing me? What I'm praying, I'm crying out to you. I, I need your help. When will you involve yourself in this situation or in that situation? So we, we, we closed last week with this great truth chapter 2 and verse 1, where eventually Habakkuk comes to this place, and he says this, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. He's assuming that God is going to correct him. He's counting the fact that God will speak a word of truth to him. And we pick it up this week because God is going to answer him. Habakkuk says, I'm going to go to a high place. I'm going to gain some perspective. I'm going, to, I'm going to wait. I'm going to watch. I'm going to wait to see what you do. And then God speaks in verses 2 and following. And this is a lengthy passage, and it's not an easy passage. But I'm, I'm praying, I've been praying this week that God would enable you to stay with me and stay engaged in this ancient text because it speaks to, to this week. It speaks to today. It speaks the world and the culture in which we live. Then the Lord answered me and said, this is verse 2, write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it, for the vision is yet for an appointed time. So there's an agenda that God's working with. Verse 3, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. 
because he trespasses by one, he is a proud man. And he does not stay at home because he enlarges his desire as hell. And he is like death and cannot be satisfied. He gathers to himself all nations and heaps up for himself all peoples. Will not all these take up a proverb against him and a taunting riddle against him and say, right at this point, he's going to begin what's known as the five woes. These are five taunting judgments. In verse 6 it says, Woe to him who increases what is not his, how long? To him who loads himself with many pledges, will not your creditors rise up suddenly? Will they not awaken who oppress you? And you will become their booty? Because they have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the sea and of all who dwell in it. Verse 9, the second woe. Woe to him who covets evil gain for his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of disaster. You give shameful counsel to your house, cutting off many peoples and sin against your soul, for the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the timbers will answer it. Woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed, who establishes a city by iniquity. Behold, it is, is it not the Lord of hosts that the peoples labor to feed the fire, and nations weary themselves in vain? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to your bottle, even to make him drunk, for that you may look on his nakedness. You are filled with shame instead of glory. You also drink and be exposed as uncircumcised. The cup of the Lord's hand will be turned against you, and utter shame will be on your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will cover you, and the plunder of beasts which make them afraid because of men's blood, and the violence of the land and the city, and all who dwell in it. What profit is the image that its makers should carve it, the molded image, a teacher of lies, that the maker of its mold should trust in it to make new idols. Woe to you who says to wood, Awake, silent stone, arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, yet in it there is no breath at all. And finally, verse 20, But the Lord is in his holy temple, that all the earth keeps silence before him. This is God's word. Lord, come now and help us to hear. Come now and help us to see our name in the page. Come now and serve us, Lord, by opening our eyes. Help us to understand what you want to communicate to your church in this place on this day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in 2012, there was a labor dispute between the NFL and the referees. Uh, the season began with replacement refs, and some of you remember it. These are men that I'm sure did the best job that they could, but they lacked the kind of expertise and insight that the first stringers possessed. And so the season began with unofficials, who were on, at least on a certain level, who were somewhat unofficial. Um, they were, um, and, and as could be expected, uh, the fans and the players, when they blew some calls, went ballistic about this. Do you remember the scene? 
it wasn't a pleasant experience. Bad calls influenced the outcome of more than one bidding. It was not long before a deal was struck and the professionals were back on track. In fact, it was only three weeks long. I'm interested by that because if you think about it, it's somewhat ironic. If, if you're going to make calls in the National Football League, then we want the best and the brightest. We want people who see and know things and who are sharp and who are discerning and who understand the rules and have good eyes that can see the lines and things like that. That's the world that we live in. That's the culture in which we live in day by day by day. It's interesting because if you flip that over, you realize that we live in the midst of a culture that is hoping, really hoping, that God, the God of eternity and the God of the universe, is not really spending that much time or giving that much attention to all the details. When we are, we have refs in football games, man, we want to be brilliant. But we're kind of hoping, a lot of people are kind of hoping that God is not seeing all and that he does not know all. And that somehow he's not really that omniscient, that omnipresent, or that powerful. And yet, you realize from Habakkuk 2, that the God that is spoken of here in the text sees it all. And that he is the perfect official. He never blows a call. He never misses a detail. There isn't some situation that he does not understand. And, And that's the distinction here in Habakkuk chapter 2. Imagine that Habakkuk is wrestling with God. But you have in God one who sees and knows all. There is no detail about us that is unseen to God. No heart is hidden. No action is obscured from him. And as you study the book of Habakkuk, that's the truth that you come to time and time again. Now, it's been said that Habakkuk is kind of a doubting Thomas of the Old Testament. You remember Thomas from the New Testament? Unless I see his hands inside, I will not believe. And it isn't until Christ presents himself to Thomas that he bows down low before him and says, My Lord and my God. What a glorious truth. And God is going to bring him back to the prophet from fear to faith, from worry to worship, from sobbing to song. Part of that process involves understanding, re-engaging with the character of God. And the character of God is gloriously on display in Habakkuk chapter 2. Habakkuk 2 details the mastery of the judge of the universe. Habakkuk chapter 2 tells us that God is officiating in what sometimes appears to be a free-for-all, but he is not indifferent Neither is he inconsistent in any way. What it demands of us, as the doubting Thomas is, is that we go to Watchtower, we wait, we watch, and we see what God is doing. Remember, this small book of Habakkuk is very similar to Asa's song in Psalm 73. We mentioned this in our introduction. And in Psalm 73, Basically, Asaph, the worship leader of Israel, says, you know, I saw what was going on with the wicked. They seemed to be getting ahead. It seemed as though the rats were winning the race, and my feet had almost slipped. I was losing my grip. I couldn't handle it. It wasn't until I went into the house of the Lord, and in the house of the Lord, there is this declaration of the character and the majesty 
understood that, in fact, they were in slippery places and that they were on a collision course with Almighty God. Interesting because Sabaka, in waiting, comes to recognize the collection, comes to recognize the power and perception of God. God is not sluggish. God is not sloppy. God is not forgetful. We do not speak of God as some contemporary. He is, in fact, the eternal King and God over all things. Let me give you two points as we traverse our way through the text this morning from Habakkuk 2. First of all, you'll notice in verses 2 to 5, God says to Habakkuk, write this down. Write this down. Notice it in verse 2. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it, for the vision is yet for an appointed time. This is for public consumption. Habakkuk, you need to be clear about this. You need to be certain about this, and so get it down. You ever been in a conversation with someone, and maybe you're trying to deal with one of these he said, she said situations, and so you say, wisely and perceptively, do you mind if I quote you on this? Can I write this down? And all of a sudden, people are like, yeah, maybe hold off on writing it down. Can I record this? Can I, can I record what you're saying about this individual? Well, you know, it's, yeah. All of a sudden, you know something's going on, Right? When somebody says, write it down, then you know you can take this to the bank. These commas and these jots and these tittles, this is essential truth. And so what God says to the back is, take this down. You, you, you be my secretary. You, you write this down. You record exactly what I'm telling you so that it can be broadcast. The Word of God is not going to change. This is this immutable, unchangeable gloriously settled word from on high. This is the Logos of God. Get it down and get it good. He's not changing his mind. He's not going to say, you know, a couple years later, yeah, I was just kidding about that. I wasn't sure. There's none of that with God. We can't speak like that. I can't speak like that. And I dare say, beloved, neither can you. All of us struggle with being sort of terminal human and not seeing it all and not knowing it all. And even when we think we've got it all settled, not being 100% sure sometimes because we have perception issues. But it's not so with God. The work that is being done by God, the judgment that is being meted out by God is absolutely perfect. His agenda is secure. His itinerant is unchanging. And essentially, Habakkuk has said, you know, I don't really like what you're doing. I don't like the way you're handling this situation. But God goes and says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to pick up Babylon and judge Judah's sin with Babylon. And then, as we carry on in the text, I'm going to judge Babylon. Now, you, you come away from a passage like that and our minds sort of boggle at it and you realize God is speaking as one who is ultimately majestic and in charge, who is ultimately sovereign over all things, and he does what he does. And we don't always understand it, but we realize that it's always gloriously consistent with his character. For us as humans to reconcile what is the activity of God and what is the character of God is a real struggle sometimes. And yet we realize from passages like this that God sees it all and God knows it all, God's going to put it into play in a perfect way. We won't always, always understand it, but God is God. Progress is going to be made 
in the fulfillment of this, verse 3 tells us that there is an appointed deadline. This vision, he says, is for an appointed time. So here in the time-space continuum, there's going to be a schedule that will be worked through by God. It also says, and at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it carries, wait for it. Habakkuk, wait for it. And I would say to you, brothers and sisters, wait for it. Well, what are you doing? How are you judging? When are you going to settle this? When are you going to hear my cry? When will you enter in and power and strength and change someone or change some situation? And God's word to us, why don't you go to the watchtower and wait and see? I love what Flavel says. The providences of God, like the Hebrew alphabet, are best read backwards. What is God doing in some of your lives? Here's my answer. I'm not exactly sure. Would you wait with me? Would you see what God is doing? Lord, I've been crying out for this for this rebel child. I've been crying out for this rebel parent. I've been crying out before the Lord about this health situation, about this need, or about whatever it is that you have on your prayer list. Sometimes God says, you need to wait and see. I'm involved. Be, be careful in seeing the world through your own perspective. Be careful in reading and interpreting the world and the events of the world in a, not a theocentric, but in an egocentric way, where it all comes back to us. And there's this smothering absorption with self, and there's the autonomous self, and we're sort of weighted down by the things that we want and the preferences that we have. What Habakkuk 2 says to us loudly is, is that God has a plan, He's working a plan, wait and see, write it down, it will occur. For the proud, there is contortion, but for the faithful, there is a consistency. He, he will contend. He will, he will labor behind the scenes. For those that know him as Lord and Savior and Master, there will be the chastening and the discipline of children. For those who refuse him, those who rebel against him, there is, in God's word, wrath and judgment and justice. That's a biblical concept. You say, I don't like it. But it's a biblical concept. We recognize here that, that faith becomes a pattern of living. And so the first thing that Habakkuk says from the text in verses 2 to 5 is, Habakkuk, get this down. Write this down. You need to have things settled in your mind and heart. This is something for public consumption. This is not set in a corner or set off to the side. And then the text goes on in verses 6 to 20 in rather a lengthy section as God responds. And what he does is he reveals five woes. When I say, whoa, I don't mean like you're driving a pony and you say, whoa. Uh, this is not a W-H-O-A. This is a W-O-E. And right away, there's some of us who say, man, that sounds old. And it is an old term. In fact, old English people would talk about a tale of woe or wheel. And some of you are saying, whoa, I didn't know about wheel at all. Well, woe means... Woe means bad things. Woe has a cursing judicial component to it. And wheel has an element of blessing and kindness and favor to it. And what we've got here in verses 6 through 20 are God revealing five woes. Habakkuk said, you know, what are you doing, Lord? You're using Babylon? Babylon's going to judge us? I can't believe that. And then God says, oh, I, I got it covered. I've got five pronouncements of woe. And I'm going to deal with these at a fairly high 
it's important that we recognize in the text a certain elasticity, which means that this has a near and far component to it. There's in God this glorious consistency to God. And so, if you will, if the shoe fits, wear it. And so even as we read through these woes, please don't distance yourself from the text and say, yeah, that was the ancient Babylonians, they were bad dudes, but this is 2018, and, you know, I'm a, I'm a bird of a different feather. I want you to hear the word of the Lord and realize that this is an unchangeable, uncorrected word. And so he lays out these five woes directed particularly to the Babylonians, but also having a bearing upon our lives, and so don't scurry away from the spotlight of God's truth. There is a precision and a perception here. These verses tell us that God misses nothing, that everything is in His purview and in His notice. His holiness is never negotiated. It is never limited. It is never lessened. And there's a poetic element. As we read through the text, you probably had some word pictures that were popping off in your mind when he talks about, you know, the, the different phrases and things like that. There is a poetic component here as well. It, it, it's, it's as though that the handwriting is on the wall, as we've spoken about. There's almost as well this taunting component to it. If you remember the prophet Elijah on Mount Carmel, remember when they're when he's going to battle with the, the priests of Baal, and the priests of Baal are trying to call down fire, and Elijah says, well, maybe maybe Baal is busy, maybe he's using the washroom, maybe he's sleeping, or something like that. There is this taunt component, even to the text here, before us in Habakkuk 2. Each will has three parts. Each will has three verses. When you're studying Scripture, when you see things that are repeated, you should take notice of that. A little light should begin to flash in your mind, but each woe has three parts. There is a pronouncement, there is a painful taunt, and there is a promise of retribution. So woe is an old exclamation of distress. It is pronounced in the face of coming or impending disaster. And he lays them out for us to feed on. Because in these woes are the character and the precision and the pristine nature of God Most High. So let me give them to you. I have one other note as we go to the text. There's, there's a reflexive component to this. And what I mean by that is that there's a boomerang. So in other words, if you were greedy, and if your boomerang was greed, and you threw it, it comes back on you. And so with each of these woes, you have this sense in which, you know what you were doing, how you were sinning, how you were violating the law of God? You thought that somehow you were going to get away with it? Well, guess what? It comes back on you. Just like if I walk off this podium and immediately fall down, painfully, I might add, that's the law of gravity, there are moral laws in this world that God has placed into action, and they're occurring all the time. God's Word says, you know, um, be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a person sows, that shall he also reap. God's Word also says in the book of, of Romans, Behold, look at, stare at the goodness and the severity of God. We've created this strange situation in our culture today where all we want to talk about is God's love. You cannot do that and maintain a robust, fully rounded image of God because God is truthful and graceful. God is a God of might who will have his way. God is also
also a God of glorious mercy. But you cannot say, like Thomas Jefferson tried to say, that everything that speaks of judgment and discernment and adjudication, I want to cut that out of the Bible. You cannot do that and still maintain an image of who God is. God is holy, holy, holy. There is this mysterium tremendum. There is this awesome mystery to God. And we dare not tinker with the character of God as presented in the Word of God. And so these five woes come to us from that backdrop. First of all, woe number one, chapter two, verse 16. The looter will be looted. Those who rip people off will themselves be ripped off. Those who plunder will, in fact, God's word says, be plundered. The Babylonians were so eager to enrich themselves, they were going to pile up the resources that Jerusalem had, and what God's word says is you're going to be plundered. In fact, the Medo-Persian Empire would look at the Babylonians and say, man, they got a lot of gold, they got a lot of goodies. Guess what? We're going to come and get it. And so the, the woe here is that for people who invest themselves, their time, their effort, and energy into gathering and having and sitting on it the way Smog the dragon sits on a pile of gold, God's word says it's going to be taken from you. That's the, that's the boomerang of those that break the law of God. The looter will be looted. We sang it as kids, didn't we? Gimme, gimme, never get. Oh, you get it for a while, maybe, but you can't keep it. You cannot maintain it. So the looter will be looted. In verses 9 to 11, woe number 2, the exploiter will be exploited. Your stolen house of cards is going to fall in on you. All the stuff that you carried away is going to crush you. I was thinking of an illustration of this from modern history, and I can't help but think of the the Nazis who stole all of those masterpieces and all of that gold and had amassed all of these riches. Well, they exploited. They exploited Jewish people. They exploited the nations that they conquered. And guess what? They got torn from their grasp. Such is the inflexible, perfect nature of God's judgment. Your injustice will follow you home. Your stolen goods, your contraband will bring you down. The exploiter will be exploited. God's word Habakkuk says, this is how it's going to go down. Thirdly, this, the malicious will be mistreated. Verses 12 to 14, the malicious will be mistreated. Notice with you verse 12, woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed, who establishes a city by iniquity. Behold, is it not the Lord of hosts? That the peoples labor to feed the fire, the nations bear themselves in vain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. Verse 14 is this word-warm um, truth to our hearts. God is going to fill the world with his name. The brother last night said that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Kind of like, well, we, we live around a, around a bunch of rebels and around a bunch of people who don't want to hear about God and don't want to know God. God's word says everybody bows. You either bow before him as Savior or you bow before him as judge. But one day, everyone comes face to face. It's pron, cross, confeton. It's before the face of God. And that's an awesome thought, and that's one that should be in our minds. We spend so much time thinking about silly things and superfluous things and secondary things, 
this truth that ought to be reverberating in our minds and hearts is one day I sing a solo before God. One day I will meet my maker. And with God, there is nowhere to run and there is nowhere to hide. No one gets out alive. Unless, of course, we're carried away in Jerusalem. But that's for another time. The reality is, is that what God's Word says here is that those that have been malicious and those that have mistreated people, the, the great king will ultimately carry the day. Pride goes before a fall. And what you're really only doing in gathering up stuff is feeding the fire. You have to breathe deeply from this fresh truth in verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Voltaire predicted the end of God, interestingly. His home was used to preach violence. Isn't that fascinating? Nietzsche said, God is dead, God is dead, we have killed him. Can't you smell his rotting corpse? Well, Nietzsche's rotting. God is still Malicious will have to endure the kind of maliciousness they have meted out as glory carries the day. Well, number four, the shamer will be shamed. The perverted, the debauched will be exposed. The, the immoral will be shamed. Read with me these verses again in part. Woe to him who gives drink to the neighbor, pressing into your bottle even to make them drunk, that you may look on his nakedness. We're living in a pervasive and a permissive culture. We're living in a nation that is awash in pornography. And it is not liberating us. It is putting us into bondage. It is symptomatic of the sickness of our souls because somehow we thought that would fill us up and that would bring joy and that would bring excitement. And it doesn't because only Jesus can. Because only Jesus can. This is an affection issue. God's Word says here that the shame will be shamed. It reminds me of Noah and Ham in Genesis 9, where Noah gets drunk and Ham sees his father's nakedness. The idea that he would somehow use some advantage to, to gain an advantage over someone so that you could view their nakedness or view their shame. God sees that and he reckons that, and that will come back upon them. The shamer will be shamed. Rule number four. Rule number five, and this is the this is the fifth and final one. It's found in verses 18 to 20. The idolater would have to endure being ignored. Eventually, God would say, you don't want me? You don't want me? Well, this is what life without me is like. This is what life without grace and mercy and any vestige of that is like. And it's an especially designed place. It's a place called hell. And interestingly, God's word says here that the idolater the person that invests themselves in rocks and stones and idols and things that are that are alternate gods or anti-gods, where you refuse and you rebel against God, God's Word says the idolater will endure in, in being ignored. The reality here is that there is a foolish loyalty to rocks and stones, as though somehow the, the work of our hands could become animated. Even as we, even as we think about people and even were we able to assemble all the parts of a person, it would still need God to breathe life into it. That's a fantastic thought. We even find ourselves in the day and age in which we live making idols of other people. What a mistake that is. There's a kind of a traditional Jewish story about Abraham and 
Terah that I, I find interesting. If you don't know it, Terah, Abraham's father, was an idol maker. And when God's call comes upon Abraham's heart, calling him out of darkness and into light, there's an interesting dynamic going on there from the book of Genesis. But there is this kind of mysterious story that um, one day Abram took a stick and he knocked the heads off of his father's idols. And then he, he left the head on one idol and he put the stick in the hands of the one idol. And his father Terah came to him and he said, what happened here? And Abram said, I think he knocked all the heads off all the other idols. And his father said, that can't be, it's just stone. And Abram pointed the finger and said, I think I got you. It's just, it's just a fanciful Jewish story, but I find it absolutely interesting. Because we're living in a day and age of, of, of idols. And you say, well, I'm not like the pagans in some of those developing countries. Whether you're worshiping a shiny boat, a shiny car, a shiny house, a, a full bank account, that's really your God. You're an idolater in that sense. That's what says the idolater is going to be judged. God pronounces woe on those that are selfishly ambitious, those that are greedy, those that are violent, those that are immoral, and those that are idolaters. The man of pride ultimately falls apart before the majesty and the rule of the great I Am. That's not pleasant news for us on a certain level. It's disturbing to us. We read a passage like this and we come away and we say, who can be saved? And our response is, well, no one apart from Christ's saving work. Who can keep us this clean? Who can guard our hearts from this kind of baggage and pollution? And the response is, only God. We kind of find ourselves, as Paul does in the book of Romans, saying, you know, the things I don't want to do, I do. The things I do want to do, I don't do. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And Paul goes on and says, I thank God for Jesus Christ. Who else can clean us? I cannot fix myself. Folks, you can't fix yourself either. But the foot of the cross, humbly before the majesty of Jesus Christ, we find redemption. We find a ransom price paid for us. You know how it changes us. Thank you, brother, for sharing your story. Coming to church, doing it all, doing it all, being busy, being active. Paul does not say for me to live his church. Paul does not say for me to live his creed. It's repeating the right things. Paul does not say for me to live his effort or activity or good works or kindness or baking cookies for the neighbor or helping out at the little league games. Paul says for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that's the great truth that we need to take into the highways and the byways. The conclusion for us is found in verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. Joshua one day goes out to plan strategy before the battle of Jericho. And he meets the angel of the Lord. And Joshua asks this profound question. Whose side are you on? And God's response is... I am on my side. Whose side are you on? That's a great question. Man proposes, God disposes, but the question of the ages is, whose side are you on? Well, I 
Elijah the prophet said, if God is God, serve him. If Baal is God, then serve him. At some point, you can't live in at the crossroads. You come to this place and you realize, I'm all in for you, Lord. I've tried wine, women, and song like Solomon and Ecclesiastes, but Lord, you alone provide peace and shalom on the inside. The glorious truth that's shared with us in the back is that one day, the Lord in his holy temple will fill the earth and all the earth will be silent before him because he is in utter majesty. I have a, a few applications. I'll, I'll give them to you very quickly. But I think they help wrap together and put a capstone on the text before us. God answers our questions with a view of himself as a discerning, determined judge. That's an important truth. Habakkuk is wrestling Habakkuk is embracing it. It's difficult for him to do it. How does God answer it? Well, God answers that question by showing him himself. This is what I'm like. This is how I operate. This is how I roll. This is what I do. And it's very, very important for us as humans. Secondly, just because our timing is not his timing does not mean that we should mistrust God. Garth Brooks sang it, that, that great theologian. He said, I thank God for unanswered prayers. Right? I thank God for unanswered There are some things that we prayed about. Let's be square here in church. We prayed about God did not answer. And now, four years, five years, ten years removed from that situation, we say, thank you, Lord. Thank you. I now see and know what I did not know then. So just because you haven't received an answer does not mean that I no longer trust you. What are you doing here? I'm out of here. There's no way to treat the majesty of all the earth. Thirdly, the basis of our confidence is the living faith that preserves us. The theater said, I have been saved, I am being saved, and I shall be saved. That is great truth for us as Christians in a work today world. God is saving us. Tomorrow morning when we get ready, we're pulling our jeans and heading off to the workplace. Guess what? The gospel will be at work in your life. And that is great news because the glorious consistency of God is at work in our lives. Fourthly, this. You either live by the fleeting power of the world or by the vital power of your faith in God. Your hope either flows from money and health and property and popularity and exercise or it flows from God choice is yours. God said, I have set before you life and death. Choose life. Ultimately, he says, choose me. Quickly and finally, we marvel at this passage because the righteous God provides a way of escape. There's a huge difference between enduring the chastening of the Lord, the correction of the Lord, the woodshed experience of the Lord as his children, and there's a whole different situation to enduring the wrath of God and the judgment of God. And that's the distinction that's made because when we come to Christ at the foot of the cross, we become his child. And when our children fail us, we do not say, I'm sorry, but you're dead to me. I no longer want you to be my child. We don't. We love them. And such is the way that God has loved us. I close with this passage in the book of Job. Habakkuk is kind of like a breviary or a, a, a brief Job 
as Job concludes, beginning in chapter 38, after the dialogue with the friends and all the loss and the back and forth with Job and the painful reasoning and all that goes with it, in chapter 38 of Job, God begins to speak in conclusion, and he asks four chapters of questions. Four chapters of questions that, interestingly, are unanswerable to Job. I'll give you just a smattering of them. You look tired. It's like a lot of you are working at the banquet, and so I understand that. I'm going to keep that in mind. Be respectful. Thanks for being here today. But in 38, he says, I'll ask you a question, Job. And you, you answer me, that's verse 3. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Verse 6. To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? Verse 8. Who shut in the sea with its doors? 12. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Verse 16, have you entered the spring of the sea? 19, where, where is the way of the dwelling of light? Verse 21, do, do you know because you were born then? Verse 22, have you entered the treasury of snow? Or have you seen the treasury of hail? 31, can you buy in the cluster of Pleiades or loose the belt of Orion? And then in 39, do you know the time when the wild mountain goats bear young? And it goes on and on and on, and it's beating Job down until finally, later on, in verse uh, 2 of 42, Job is going to respond. After four chapters of unanswerable questions, listen to what we hear from Job, chapter 42. Verse 2, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You know what happens? Job gets kind of quiet. Job is now worshiping in a way. And when we say worship, he's feeling the heaviness of God in a way that is absolutely right for the creation to feel. So let me ask you this question as we prepare to take flight from this place. Have you struggled to worship God and feel the weight of God? Have you been struggling with some of the deep questions and the whys in your life and wondering, God, don't you care? Why haven't you yet, Lord? My prayer is that as you read through a passage, haunting and heavy as a back of two is, that you would come to grips with this one who is ultimately in charge and find yourself putting your hand over your mouth, maybe, and just worshiping. Just being still before God. This doesn't mean that all the questions get answered tomorrow. But what, what it means is that you are finally, fully in the place that God has determined would be a place of blessing, hope, and wholeness. to do, the ancient king says. Jehoshaphat the king says, he's surrounded by enemies, he says, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you, Lord. And that's part of the challenge for us as people of faith. We, we operate by faith and not by sight, and it's difficult. But that's the challenge that God lays before us. Father God, we thank you. We're reminded in your word that you, the 
judge of all the earth will do right. What a marvelous truth that is for us. Father God, I pray that you bless your people with these words from this ancient prophecy. For far too long, the character of God has been divided, has somehow been sidelined. Father, we pray that there might be a glorious roundness and fullness as we, like the Bereans, search the scriptures ourselves to see if it is so. Father, we thank you that you are a God of grace and truth. And we pray that as your children meeting here in this place, that, Lord God, we would worship you as you are to be worshipped. We pray, Lord God, that for those that might be here who have not felt the heaviness of God, I pray that they would feel the heaviness of God this day. And if there are questions, they would seek answers to those questions. Father, we thank you for your, your multitude of kindnesses. We thank you, Lord, that you spoke in many ways in times past, in various ways, but, Lord, that in these last days you've spoken unto us by your Son. Help us to rightly revel in that and delight in that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.